I'm Adam Pacey of Floodland Brewing, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest is Steve Luke, Cloudburst Brewing. He's here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. First, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media at All About Beer. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We'll get into the conversation in just a moment, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Falling temps and festive seasons are fast approaching, which means now is a good time to develop holiday stouts and brown ales using hibiscus and cinnamon from First Tea. Looking for other new ideas? You can find out more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit malteuropemaltingco.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at malteurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. Okay, let's get into it. A bit about my guest today. Steve Luke started working in the brewing industry at the legally appropriate age of 21, sweeping floors and taping boxes at Allagash Brewing back in 2005. After brewing stints around New England and the Pacific Northwest, most notably Cambridge House Brew Pub, Rogue, and Elysian, he opened Cloudburst Brewing in 2015 in an old and crusty building just north of Pike Market. Among all his flashy accomplishments, three World Beer Cup medals, 10 GABF medals, plus a Brewer of the Year, and a James Beard Foundation semifinalist, he considers being friends with Adam Pacey one of his finer achievements. Steve Luke, uh, when I texted you to ask you about doing this, your response was, is this how we finally get to have beers? <laughs> <laughs> which which I felt terrible about, but I thought was like quintessentially you. Well, you know, we, we, we try to have beers a couple times a year because we live three blocks from each other. And it's always, uh, you know, both of our schedules are so unpredictable sometimes. Yeah. That, uh, that yeah. You know, we have two, two children between us, right? And two businesses. Yeah. And you still have two dogs? I don't. We have zero dogs. Zero dogs. Yeah. Very sadly, we're down to two cats and zero dogs. Both of our dogs passed in the last, I mean, I guess it's been a couple of years, but yeah, sadly. So. Uh yeah, I know. Bummer. Bummer. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually I was um, it was early days of Bloodland and um, Nick, who now does Alma Mater Brewing, was brewing some work for us at Fremont Brewing. And uh, one of my dogs fell and broke his hip and he had bone cancer. Zeke, who was like my yes. type. Of, yeah. And I I was so sad about it that I um, we didn't get another dog. And then our other dog just passed like last year. So zero dogs in the Pacey household. How you know we yeah we don't have one either but I'm I'm slowly wearing Holly down to become like a foster parent so 2024 is the goal to like get dogs back into my life yeah I'm sorry man 
but yes. Man, what let's not let's let's segue. What a bummer uh bummer start of talking about past dogs. Yeah, what happens when you put bummer Adam Pacey and like happy dude Steve Luke together? Apparently uh, we found <laughs> out. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of wanted to talk about like I didn't want to get too deep into how we know each other and our history, but when I was starting Floodland, I was making work off-site and using other people's brew houses and moving it back to my spot in totes. So my brewery would definitely not exist without the generosity of a very small number of brewers, including you. And one of the things I learned in running small businesses is that when you have these tiny, tiny business, you have no economy of scale that even slightly larger breweries, even breweries who are making, you know, 5,000, 6,000, who are still really small breweries, they have some economy of scale. But these breweries, you know, when you're under three or 4,000 barrels a year, and we're under 300 barrels a year, you have no economy of scale at all. And I just want to know what your approach is when you make business decisions like that, which is you have razor thin margins, and yet you repeatedly chose to go out of your way to help me out when you knew that it wasn't a business decision, it would, it would provide you with no benefit to you, no benefit to your brewery. Oh, man, I totally even like, I, I forgot about like us milling grain for you. Like, yeah. yeah. Showing up with your truck and like having a partial pallet of grain and be like, all right, it's time to, time to mill Adam's grain. And, and yeah, our grist case isn't really set up for it. So you're just like bagged by, Bag by bag, right? We're- yeah, you, you guys would stop what you were doing and help me back a box truck in. And then I would unload all this grain. You would stop what you were doing to let me come use your mill. Like I, w- I was moving the grain, milling, because the, the spot I was making most of my work didn't have a mill. Um, So I brewed, I mean, I think for a year and a half, I milled all of my grain at Cloudburst. And I just thought like, why? Like I we were buds, but like, how is that a business decision? Like what's your, what's your approach to running a small business that, that you even considered that? Cause I think from a, from a business standpoint, it's a, ter- it was a terrible decision for you. I guess so. I guess, I guess I've never really thought, I don't, I still don't think of myself as a business person or like, or an entrepreneur or anything like that. Cause it's just, I'm just a brewer that has their own brewery, you know, <laughs> worked really hard to get there. But when we make decisions I mean, helping you is easy. Like you've got genuine intentions. Like you like, you know, it's, it's easy to help someone that you can just like see their passion, you know, like behind mm-hmm. what they're doing and like see their vision. And like, then that gets you excited mm-hmm. about like, okay, like this is what Adam's doing. Like, this is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. And you're, it's, it's hard not to like root for you. And for people that, you know, you can kind of really like see that all the way through, like they've got that passion and drive they have the intentions and then their execution on top of that is fantastic. You know, like there's not a lot of people out there that kind of start out of the gates with all those things going, going for them. But I think business wise, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, we, our margins are still tight, but we do, we're still so small, you know, we've got, there's 13 people on payroll, but maybe four of them are four to five are part-time. Um, it's still me and one other person making work twice a week. Uh, there's three of us kind of in the brewery. You know, Noah's still doing everything on the on the front side of things. So he's director of sales, but he's also 
he's also our delivery person. He's the person pricing out cogs. He's the person emailing sales sheets, taking orders, inputting invoices, and then dropping the keg off, you know, most days a week too. So we've learned to kind of to work within our means uh, and put a lot of, a lot of uh, responsibilities on everyone's plate, but having a small team also allows us to like pay people for doing those extra things on their plate too. So um, that's kind of a, a rambling sidebar, but I know you and I have talked about kind of like, you know, on that aspect of we're not business. I don't, you know, I don't think you think of yourself as a business person either, but we also still look at making sure like that we are really good employers, right? Like where, where you, I, I hope people like working, you know, at Cloudburst, just like, I feel like you feel the same way at Floodland. Yeah. I think when you come from a background of being an employee and you become an employer, some people hold on to that, right? Some people hold on to their experiences, like what it was like on the other end of the spectrum or on the other end of that equation. And, and some people, I think it's, it's easy to lose that when you start making much money. And if you're not making much money, it's probably a lot easier to hold on to it. But, but it's, I mean, it, it surprises me that you don't think of yourself as an entrepreneur. I, I feel like maybe I don't think of my brewery as much. I think of my, like I always make, I'm always joking about, it. I'm like, this is more of an art project than a brewery, but, 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 um, which is which is more meant to just sort of like poke fun at how bad I am at running it as a business, which you know helps me take me off the hook. But but I mean the amount of work that you had to go through to start Cloudburst was pretty staggering. Did didn't at some point you have a a change of how you looked at yourself in that process? I mean I. No, not not particularly. It's I guess I compartmentalized it more. Where it's like I still think of myself as the, as a brewer, and everything that I do as far as like the business from startup to to now, it's like everything that I like really don't like doing that takes up time of my time. It's all like the things that I say I have to do just so I can continue to like make beer every week. So. Uh, I mean, like that's the reward is like, which sometimes you get lost uh, thinking about why you did this. You know, the longer things go on, you're like, what the, what am I doing? Like, why, why am I doing this? Um, but still kind of coming back to being like, I love making beer. And so all this other crap I have to do week in and week out is just so that I can continue to like making beer, which I love to do. So I, I mean, like, yeah, you got to have some business savvy to like, you know, stay in business for sure. Um, I feel like I've just kind of like lucked, lucked out a little bit in a couple different aspects of it so that we don't have to worry as much about, you know, the business side of things so long as the beer still shows like, you know, my, my love and passion, like in it to week in and week out. What do you think put you in that category of being a, a lifer? Like you were saying, you, you started in 2001, like you've been You've been basically you've been working in breweries your whole adult life at this point. Like what what's what set you on that path rather than we see so many people who kind of come into beer and it is a, a trend and they get into it and then they get out of it and they move on to other things. Like, what do you think? What set the hook in you like that? Oh, man, I know I'm stuck now. There's nothing else I can do. So beer, beer, beer it is. Beer it was. Beer it will be. Um 
I think what started it, I mean, so like, yeah, I, I definitely found myself gravitating towards craft beer, you know, in high school, uh, just with just like different flavors, you know, it's like we all had fake IDs and instead of like, you know, grabbing your, your 18 pack of Natty Ice, it was like, what's this six pack of, you know, Sierra Pale Ale doing over here and, and things like that. Um, and then going to school in Maine, we're like craft beer, like that craft beer scene in Maine, you know, in the nineties was pretty strong. So into the, into the mid aughts, it's like craft beer was kind of everywhere. It was like a normal thing, which I, I don't think, you know, most places in the country really considered like all these different craft beer options, um, around, you know, their States like, like Maine had. And so, yeah, first job at Allagash was such a great experience that I was like, okay, like, I don't really know what I want to do, but I know that I had a really great time working for that brewery that I just was at. And maybe I should just kind of pursue this and kind of see where that takes me. Um, and I think, yeah, throughout the, throughout, you know, the almost, well, yeah, almost 20 years in the industry. It's like, I worked at some great breweries and I worked at some, mm-hmm. some breweries that shall not be named for like four days or, mm-hmm. you know, a couple months. You're like, what, wh- why am I here? Like, what is this? This is not the experience that I was expecting kind of a thing. So, um, but through, through all that, you know, it's, it's, I, it's a kind of a cool space to, to be in, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I guess you you were drawn to this space, right? As a as already a a person with a a real life job and not a not a brewing job. Yeah, it's funny that you asked that because um, Aaron, who's the other full time um, brewer at Floodland, and I were driving by Legion Fields just yesterday, and um, there's been so much construction around there, and that whole area has been completely rebuilt, right? They tore down the viaduct, and everything looks different. And I was kind of marveling at it. And we drove by, and I was like, "Hey, I, hey, I worked in this building," and uh, and I had flashed back to it, and I'd completely forgotten that I, for a couple of years, I sat at at this desk, and I looked out the window, and I looked down at your brewery where you that you ran, Allegian Fields. And I looked, I would turn around and look out and I could see into your brewery. And I didn't, with, I didn't with or without binoculars. <laughs> yeah. With... <laughs> Next question. Uh, <laughs> and I was, I was a, a home brewer, like, a, and, and not a sort of casual home brewer. Like I had a, a, a commercial warehouse that I rented with three friends. I had, you know, a, homebrew system that had an HLT and tri-clamps and pumps and stuff. Like I was like a, a long time serious homebrewer and had been writing business plans and thinking about whether or not I should quit my job and start a brewery for years. And one of the things that definitely motivated me was I spent, I don't know, it must've been 18 months and I looked out and I could see your brewery right there. And every day I had to turn around and then do my work at my computer. And it was, um, it was like, it, it highlighted how soul crushing and repetitive my job was. And, and it's obviously, it's like, it's really easy to romanticize working in a brewery. Working in a brewery is like a pretty manual labor job. It's pretty repetitive. Um, but I would, you know, I'd, sometimes I'd go grab a sandwich at Tats and I'd walk back to Legion Fields. I'd like, or I'd walk back or, you know, at the end of the day, I'd kick off and I'd go drink Bobble and Bibblot, or I would go drink, you know, Mango Unchained or any of these like incredible beers that you had brewed. And I just remember thinking like, holy shit, who the, who is this guy? 
who is this brewer who's brewing here? Why is everybody in the city not talking about how this is the best beer in the city? And then a couple of years later, everyone was once you opened Cloudburst and the sort of secret was out. But I felt like I was I felt like I'd stumbled onto the inside track at the time, um, which is crazy. And I didn't even remember this story until yesterday. Like it didn't figure into the calculus of asking you to be the guest on this. And I don't know if you and I have ever even talked about that, but um, there was there was definitely a strange um, aspect to me, me being a brewer that definitely was in part due to you. Wow. That's, that's wild. I mean, yo, we've only really talked about, what was it? Bibelot when, when Laurel was HBC 291 and you had that pale ale and, and the, the quest for that Laurel continues every year of like, where was this straw? Like it was such like red strawberry. So tell this, tell the story about those two beers and what they were about and then how that transpired with us over the years so yeah those um i mean elysia fields it was a, it was like a little seven it was a 10 heck but really it was kind of a an eight eight to seven barrel brew house um and it was kind of like the the experimental playground at elysia so anytime we got new hops new ingredients um it was like let's make a seven barrel batch of something and and i think that year that year, those were two pale ales. One was one one hop turned out to be Equinot, and one hop turned out to be Laurel. And it was kind of like, let's make the same base recipe, highlight these hops, like see what they're all about. And that that beer that had Laurel in it was just so surprised. It, like it's more surprising looking back on it because. Laurel has evolved into kind of like a, this new noble hop that I think people like to kind of sell. I mean, I've had some really nice IPAs with Laurel in them. Um, Scotty from Balter in Australia, like he, I think he puts Laurel in all of his hazy IPAs and his his hazy flagship definitely has some Laurel in there. And, and it is like this kind of soft floral, a little bit of like stone fruity hop. But the Laurel that we were playing around with back then was like bright strawberry like raspberry Hawaiian fruit punch. Like it, it was, it was so, so not Laurel today. And then you, there was a point where once Laurel was named and out, I got some and I brewed with it. And I remember I had this, like I was haunted by that beer that you made with it and how good it was. And I, I, rem I went to you and I asked you about it. And you had a story about having been at selection, right? Yes. Yeah, they brought out some Laurel. We don't select for Laurel. You know, we're still so small. So it's like our selection is still kind of, uh, it's shared with with two other breweries. And um, it's really just for Citra Mosaic and, and Simcoe. But they had brought out two lots of Laurel just for some feedback on them. And one of those lots of Laurel was like sparked that same exact memory. And I was like, oh my God, this is this is the Laurel. This is the lot. And then when, when we kind of dug a little bit deeper they're like well, it doesn't matter we're blending both of these lots <laughs> anyways and you're like oh my god but like that's where it was i mean i think there's still really there's probably there might be three farms that grow laurel now you know it's always been loftus and peralt and carpenter might might grow a little bit of it too but um i think those are kind of like the, the main three and so um when you have a hop variety that has you know that that in that particular case like you know, what, what was, what made that Laurel so different from the other Laurel on the table? You know, there's so many different variables that, 
you probably know more about about the the T word terroir than than I do. Um, but but yeah, it, that laurel still exists out there. But then if it gets blended away because you know there's a hop variety that just they they need x many pounds of it and they need to blend these lots versus have separate lots, you know, we may never see it again. Did you did you see it coming back then that your job was going to be so much about having these close relationships with hop growers and delving into the nuances of different lots and different varietals and harvest pick times? Ooh, I think I got I didn't really necessarily see it see it where it is now, but I really did once we started getting our hands on some experimental varieties and at Elysian back then it was mostly YCH uh, varieties, experimental varieties. Um, that was really exciting to me. I really wasn't, I really wasn't kind of in the, in the know as far as like how hop reading and hop development uh, was kind of going. And then kind of that, that little door opened and you're like, Oh my God, there's, this is so much more complicated um, than it, than it kind of appears on, uh, when they're palletized at your brewery so um from from there that door opened and like i kind of ran with it i just i just keep finding it still so interesting you know every year every harvest and um you know similar to you where it's like you i mean it's so odd we we've always talked about like you know wine wine is sometimes easier to make than beer at least from the perception because you have these vintages right so it's like it can be different because this is a different harvest and like it doesn't have to really be anything like the last year's version where you know in the craft beer world when people have these flagships like those beers can't really deviate at all despite having different barley and different hops uh harvest years and like things like that so um I think it's kind of one of those things that that we both have talked about where like you're dealing with a lot of fruit harvest and I mean you also have a lot of unknown variables as far as the process of your beer is going um, but hops trying to kind of get that same expression per variety every year is is such a challenge I feel like to me and I think it's a challenge to a lot of brewers that are selecting hops for like flagship beers because I mean one of the things that goes on with brewers like you is that you're making such a an agricultural product that's so deeply tied to the seasons and to the harvest, but you're being held to this standard of old school mentalities about beer, where beer is supposed to be this static, stable shelf product, right? Like it's almost, it's almost, um, it, you know, it's supposed to be like a can of beans, right? Like people expect that they, they grab it in December and it tastes the way that they, you know, it should taste when you grab it in July. And obviously we have these like predecessor breweries, you know, you look at Allagash and breweries like Sierra Nevada, who through an enormous amount of effort and intellect and, you know, harnessing technology, were able to create massively shelf stable beers. Like you could go get Sierra Nevada pale ale at, you know, you could be in, in, Kentucky at a gas station, you get Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and it tastes like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, which is, which is staggering, but also sets a bar that isn't realistic for smaller breweries. Right. I, yeah. I think that, I think that it's interesting how as different as the beers that Cloudburst makes from the beers that Floodland makes is that both of us are deeply tied to that agricultural season. Do you, do you think that's about us as people, or do you think it's something about being in the Northwest where like all these hops are grown and where we're surrounded by agriculture. 
Oh, it's got to be a little bit of both, right? I mean, like if we were making beer in Iowa, you know, would we, would we, would, I mean, I, I like to think that like whatever our beer styles are clearly like, you know, we're both making beer styles that we're passionate about and that should, that should kind of like flow into your sort your ingredient sourcing, regardless of where you are situated in, in the country, but in the Northwest. Yeah. I mean like that Eastern Washington, uh just ag scene is it's just so close that like it becomes so accessible kind of the same way that like when your passion shows for like this thing and you start getting excited about like you know varieties of apricots and plums and things that like it's like i still think that like there are three types of plums that i know and then i go you know try one of your beers or um you know go to the farmer's market and, and try some, try some jam. And you're like, Oh my God, there's like 12 different plum jams, you know, all sourced in Washington. Like, well, like it's mind blowing. So um, I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that in Seattle, we live in this bubble where there's like an enormous number of people who go to farmer's markets and who maybe are like pretty food centric. Um, and so you have this sense where there's a lot of people here who are pretty tied into that sense of the changing seasons and that, you know, that it's weird to be able to eat avocados 12 months out of the year, right? Like that's not a, that's not really like a supernatural thing. It's pretty, pretty weird. Um, and, and I think that because that people get it right. Like I know that one of the things that weirded me out after I was really deep into beer was getting used to fresh hot beers here and then going other places in the country, and I remember my wife is from Indiana and we were in Indiana right around fresh hop season. And, and I went to a brewery and the, the <laughs> bartender there was like, Oh yeah, we got this fresh hop beer. And I had to like, my wife looked at me and she was like, do not, you know, and I was like, <laughs> all right, I don't like, how do you, how do you explain this to someone? And, and I think the fresh hop scene has changed dramatically, but you're like, at this point I was like, I've driven a car full of fresh hops back from the farm when you know my buddy that i brew with has already mashed in and is waiting and we're like i got the windows open so i don't choke on co2 and stuff like i've made fresh hop fresh hop beers like with no no pellets all entirely fresh off driven from the farm not shipped like we were you know like you you text them and they're picking the hops that morning so then you go somewhere else and you're like we you start to realize how fortunate that we are to live here and that's like, you know, so this is this is something where regionally we're able to do things that people in most places of the world can't. And then even for Washington, how intense it is here, you're like the you've gone to the farthest reaches of that, right? You've you've gone to the edge. Like you you obviously saw a path and just fell in love with fresh hop beers. Because no, I don't think anyone has anyone in the world done fresh hot beers the way that Cloudburst has. I, I, I'm not aware of any. I mean, they're getting, that's, I mean, there, there are breweries now, I think 10 years ago, like, I mean, brewing a fresh hot beer at like a lesion was like kind of this like novelty ish thing. Now. Yeah. There are like, you know, a couple of breweries in Yakima, single Hill, especially like they have a fantastic grasp on almost every farm in the Valley every variety difference per those different farms, 
you know, there's the access that you kind of can start to like nerd into is like, okay, like where are they located in the Valley and what type of picking equipment do they have? And what are their kilns like? And what are their, like, how are they processing it? Who's the one palletizing it once it's, you know, bailed up and like, there's just endless amounts of uh, variables for you to really kind of like dork out on. Um, but I mean, like, yeah, for the fresh hop side of things, I think we've probably bre brewed the most fresh hops, fresh hop beers every harvest, like in our, in our tenure, you know, we're averaging like 10, uh, 10 a season and it, that's going on eight, eight seasons now. So that's, that's 80, that's 80, that's 80 beers with fresh hops that we make really no money on because of how much more expensive they are as far as like time and like, you know, usage and like things like that. But, but if anybody can be, you know, that idiotic about fresh out beers, it should be, we should be the king of the king of the idiots. So why? I think cause, cause I really give a shit about it. Like I really fucking love wet hot beers. Uh, and so like, you know, there, if you're not doing it, if you're doing it and you're not in love with it, then like, why are you, why are you putting yourself through like this six week period where it's like, I don't see my wife very much. I'm like, you know, you're, you're out of your, you're in your house for like six hours total, you know, during the week, just to basically like collapse on a bed and get up again and like make that beer. So you better really enjoy what you're doing with that. Um, and, and I do, and I think that there's always something still surprises me. Like you learn something new, every harvest, a new variety might come out of nowhere and be like, wow, that's really cool. Like I want to use this more, or you go to a new farm and you see, you know, it's just like, there's just so many fun, like angles and dimensions during harvest. So the hops are great too, but it's all the other things too, that is kind of, kind of makes that experience worthwhile. Yeah. What do you think of with that, with your relationship to farmers? Is that, how important is that to you? It's too, I mean, like it's, it's, it's everything as far as like fresh up beers go, you know, like every couple, every harvest, you get a few like emails from brewer friends being like, Hey, how do I get fresh hops? And it's like, well, I, you know, it's like, I don't know, drive out there and like, or email a farm and like, see what they're doing. Like, you've got to have some initiative, you know, to kind of make these connections. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, at first it's just like, all right, you're like, it's brewer and farmer and you're kind of bridging, you know, the ingredients together and you're putting a face to a name, but then you really kind of get to like, look into like how they run their operation. Like these are large operations, right? So it's like, they, um, they're going to have a tough year. Like this, this harvest is like pretty tough. And so it's, it's kind of one of those things where you kind of get to kind of see like, oh man, like we might, you know, I think you and your model and our model are kind of similar where we're like, we're not, we're intentionally like not growing very much. And so like, we're fairly well insulated to like the ebbs and flows of just like cyclical, like business style things, but agriculture is not. And like, if you have this agricultural product, that's like 99% of its usage is linked to this one industry and this industry isn't doing so hot, you know, right now, especially the big players who have all, you know, two to four year contracts on the books. And they say, you know what? We had that contract because we were projecting 
2% growth and we're down 5% and we don't need those 500,000 pounds of hops on our contract this year. You know, it's like, it gets kind of tricky fast. And so I think having a relationship with the farmers at least puts some of that stuff into perspective where, you know, it's like, they're really tied to craft beer and all this kind of doom and gloom in the last couple of years now affects a whole nother industry that's critical to craft beer's existence, you know, as well. And when you come to hop farms and dealing with these fresh hop beers, I mean, I think like you're saying, this is, this is not a profitable game for breweries to be making these beers. You're talking about an enormous amount of extra effort to brew these beers on top of what's already thin margins for a brewery. It's gotta be the same for farms, right? Like they're not, they're not making money off of harvesting, you know, right? Like this is a, this is a large industrial operation that requires things need to be smooth, right? They, they're, you know, they're harvesting enormous amounts of hops to stop and pull wet hops for a brewery. That's gotta be, they've got to essentially be losing money doing that. Right. It's such a pain in the butt for some of them. Like, yeah, you, you, I mean, like you kind of like figure out what the farms need and do everything you can to help. And the last five years, like a lot of farms have figured out a way to like just divert belts from their picker with clean hops to like figure out a way to like, how do we get this belt in an area where someone can just like, you know, put a 50 pound bag and collect hops as quickly as possible. So like they're getting really good at like logistics as far as, as far as picking up hops go. Um, but right. Someone is taking time out of their day, like overseeing acres of hops going through this facility constantly. And then be like, Oh, like someone just showed up, like, let me go get them a bag of a hundred pounds of this thing while all this other chaos is like going around them and yeah it's like i mean that's it's why you bring them beer and a, and have a smile on your face like every time you show up right it's just like i, I i've talked to a few friends they're like you know what they actually don't mind it now because it's just like it's just like you lift your head up for like even if you're lifting your head up for 10 minutes and it's like okay like get me out of this picker like let's go get steve hops and like let me have a conversation with someone like not on the farm for like 10 minutes and then you know it's like all right back back to the grind but um yeah it's a pain in the butt i mean some sometimes i i definitely like feel bad pulling up to a farm um and you can see like something's not going going well for them it's but it's the same way it's like you know sometimes you go you show up at a brewery like today i had a i had a horrible canning run today and i had to tell someone who was going to swing by uh, I was like, just please don't come in right now. Like I'm troubleshooting like seven things. Like I just don't want to like to see anyone. And like, it's from the hop farmer standpoint things too. Like, you know, you can kind of read the room and be like, I'm like, I'll come back. Or like, I'm so sorry that you have to like deal with this crap. But I think the fact that we're always in the same kind of, uh, we're always in that same, same world enough that like we all get it when like shit's not going the way you want. And like, uh, and trying as, as hard as you can not to be a pain in the ass. We are going to take a short break for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with Steve Luke of Cloudburst Brewing. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. 
Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCo.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at MaltEurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea has ginger for the gingerbread stout. Or try a porter or brown ale with ginger, vanilla, and cinnamon. Looking for other seasonal ideas? You can find out more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit away from IPA. I think that um, one of my favorite things locally is Claude Burst's lagers. And I, I think you guys get a lot of talk about your IPAs. And in a city that drinks a lot of lager, Seattle doesn't really have a lager-focused brewery. But uh, in 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 my opinion and for my tastes, your lagers are my favorite thing to drink in Seattle. I, I want to know, as someone who's been around for, for a bit and has seen things come and go, what, what are your thoughts about the recent lager resurgence? Well, thank you, Adam. Those are very kind words for an IPA brewer. Uh, yeah, I, I think the lager resurgence has been, it's been, I think most brewers will tell you they're happy to see, you know, more Pilsners, um, more contemporary, um, like American lagers, like slightly hot forward versions of like, you know, macro lagers. Um because I feel like that was such a brewer driven like demand that kind of led into opening up the supply side of that. You know, I felt like for the last 10 years in, you know, random articles and interviews, it was like, well, what are you drinking? And it's like, the brewer's always like, I'm drinking the Pilsner, you know, I'm not drinking the IPA, I'm drinking the Pilsner. So it just took like a while for people to say like, well, maybe I should be drinking what the brewer is going to be drinking like when they're done with their shift. Um, but that said, I mean, like I, we, uh, I was just on a panel last week at the craft beer summit of Washington, um, that does Shauna still work at yeah. Floodland? Yeah. So Shauna, uh, kind of, you know, arranged the, the days. Um, and so we kind of had this like three person logger panel, um, with myself, uh, Nate Crane from Chuckanut, and then John Marty from Lowercase, who is making a bunch of loggers too of late, um, to kind of just like do like a a sixty minute like tips and tricks and like Q and A because there's a lot of mediocre loggers out there right now, right? Like it, it's like if I see. If I see a Pilsner from a brewery that I haven't heard of or haven't had much beer from, like I kind of go in with it. Um, I, I kind of go in with it with like low, low expectations, I guess. 
do you find that too? Like just that there's more out there. So that means there's more mediocrity out there inherently. I, I mean, I think that that is um, um, a microcosm of the general craft beer movement, right? Like I, I mean, I found that as the years go by and I'm, I have a harder time turning off my ability to be critical when drinking beers that I have a harder time finding beers that I can drink that I enjoy at all. Also for me, like I don't, I, while I am enormously grateful for the resurgence in lagers, I think that hoppy beers in general have moved away from, from my palate. And I think that one of the most concerning developments in beer is the move away from brewer driven trends toward consumer driven trends. I think that more and more breweries are pandering to people with, you know, the sort of milkshake beers and um, pastries beers. Um, they're being driven by like lowest common denominator palates. Whereas I think what the scene that you and I had our roots in was a lot of people saying, man, American beer is bullshit. I went to England and the beer there was incredible. Or American beer is so boring. I went to Germany and the beer there was so incredible. And they wanted to bring all these beers um, back that they loved. And it was very brewer driven. Brewers being like, what's being made right now is not good. We can make better. And that was what led to this explosion in, in craft breweries. And I think that the the lager resurgence fascinates me because it is the only trend that I can think of in recent years that runs counter to that, where brewers clearly were at the root of it, which I, I didn't lead you on that. And you said exactly what my experience was, which was this was years and years of brewers all being like, well, we just drink pills. Like we want this, we want, you know, we want lager because it's so refreshing. Right. And, and a lot of the, the, you know, really good ones are, tend to be pretty dry and pretty hoppy and pretty bitter, which gets back to some of the roots of what was different about the original craft breweries from what was being made was that the, the beers were more bitter. Um, and, and so for on a day-to-day -day basis with our sort of like sales and what we see in the market and trends and stuff, my constant frustration as I guess, as a beer drinker is that, I see so many breweries that seem like they're just brewing what people want rather than brewing what they want to brew. And I, my, my take hot take, I guess, is that if you don't have better taste than most consumers, you shouldn't be running a brewery. Like the, the goal for us has always been to brew what we like. And that if that speaks to people, we can bring people along for like, on a journey right like we can we can elevate what people are into or get them into the niche things that we're into um and i kind of feel like if i get to the point where i'm posting like what should we brew next guys on instagram that i'm gonna go get a job at amazon man like like you know <laughs> like that's it that's the end for me so so I, I think that that's like, I wonder things and you're more, you're way more tapped into what's going on currently. And I wonder like, why doesn't Seattle have a lager brew? Why doesn't Seattle have a Chuckanut or a Heater Allen, right? Like we have these geographically North of us, South of us, we have these, you know, really, really exceptional lager breweries, but no one here does like, there's, there's no brewery like that here. There is no, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, yeah, I guess like, yeah, I mean, there, it's someone would have to really 
those those breweries that you mentioned, you know, like that's their thing, but it's kind of always been their thing. And I, I think it's hard for people to open up a brewery in the last 10 years that want to do more than, you know, 300 barrels, 500 barrels to not be able to do a few different styles. I mean, at this rate, you could do everything lager just fine. Um, you know, something hoppy, something dark, something light, something crisp, bitter, you know, like lagers, lagers allow for that. Will does will people be able to factor in like, you know, the added capital that you need for maybe different types of equipment to make make a better lager? Will they factor in eight weeks tank time? I mean, having a beer sit in a tank for eight weeks is not good business. I mean, we do it we do it anyways, but that's two to three turns on a single tank that you know we could be making more beer on. So you really just have to, it, it would, it's, it takes someone getting more creative, I think, to really open a brewery in Seattle. It's like, we're just going to do lager beers and uh, we're going to be really dogmatic about it. And we're going to, you know, it's, it's kind of like opening a distillery in Seattle, right? It's like, well, you're not going to be profitable until year five, seven, 10, if you're lucky, because the first three years you're just filling barrels and maybe making some really crappy vodka you know, to go along with it or, or gin. But um, I think it's just, a, I think logistically it's hard. It's hard to kind of open out of the gates with a, with a concept like that. Um, is that, do you think so too? Like. I, I mean, do people come to you and ask you uh, for advice about starting breweries? Because, <laughs> because, because that's what my response is going to be. Yeah. And I think, you know, yeah. What, what do you say when someone comes to you and says, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a brewery or usually they, usually what they say to me is, Hey, I'm starting a brewery. And then they have a follow-up question. What, what do you say to those people? I, I mean, like, well, to kind of backtrack a tiny bit, one of the questions on this panel last week was what if I only have four weeks to make a lager? And it was like, they just don't make one. Don't make a lager. Um, yep. But or or advocate for yourself and your brewery to make to to get six six or seven weeks and and then give it a go. Um, so, what what would you just say before that? Where where are we going with this? Oh yes, opening a brewery from yes from scratch. Don't do it. Don't do um, it. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. I would say I, in general, I don't advocate for anyone to open a brewery. In part because I think that if you if someone telling you don't start a brewery is going to dissuade you, then you're not going to be able to open a brewery. Like if me, just some chucklehead telling you, Hey, don't start a brewery. That's a bad idea. If that influences your opinion at all, then you needed to be influenced in that way because the amount of determination that it takes to start a small independent brewery, unless you come from a place of immense wealth and privilege, which some people do, but but people like you and I don't. Starting a brewery is um, going to be one of the hardest things that you do in your life, and you're going to run into so many problems and so many challenges that you need to be resilient enough to get past that. If someone's hurting your feelings, slows you down, then you're not going to start a brewery, or at least you're not going to run a brewery successfully once you start it. 
So in general, I always just tell people no. So, I mean, as much as I, as a consumer would like for Seattle to have a badass lager brewery that makes a lot of lagers that you can consistently find that are reliable, I wouldn't ask someone to do that or suggest to someone to do that. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's my answer to your question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I tend to answer the question with a question being like, have you worked in a brewery before? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's at least like, do you know what you're getting yourself into? Yeah. Um, I, you had know, <laughs> I had, I had, I know you had, which, it. which yeah. I knew was stupid at the time. I mean, I knew, I knew it was idi- idiotic. Um, but you had uh, two partners that did and, you know, and your, your passion was on the weekends in your space as well. So yeah, it wasn't yeah, like I mean, this like pipe dream that you kind of just thought would be a good idea one weekend. No, for sure. It wasn't like my mom told me that my beer was good. And, you know, I had a couple hundred thousand dollars burning a hole in my pocket. I was pretty obsessive about it for quite a while. Um, and, you know, happened to have a, a good friend who was also a really talented brewer who was willing to quit his job first and go, you know, take the plunge while we were sort of planning our brewery, which gave us some, give us some insight into what it was going to be like. But I mean, nothing can really prepare you for starting a brewery. I mean, I think that even having worked at a brewery and then started a second brewery, I still made mistakes on my second brewery. Right. Like, right. Uh, and I, there's things that I know now, you know, like we buy new tanks and I look for different things than I looked for even, you know, three, four, five years ago. Um, it's a, there's a constant learning process, right? Yeah. I think that there's more to talk about and I kind of blew past that brewer led trends and brewer led you know movements within beer styles like your experience with this has got to be really different than mine and i and i genuinely i'm I'm not asking this as a question of like i think i know what you're gonna say but what do you guys think about that when you make beers do you think about what how much how much do you think about what other people want or how people are going to respond I mean, we don't think we're still so small enough that we don't have to think too hard about that. I mean, like there, there's still a couple of beers that we'll make and we know they're going to be a hard sell. We've got a, we've got a spiced winter warmer in the tank right now. Yes. Awesome. Because it's like, you know, our special ale from anchor was one of my favorite seasonals and there's, I wouldn't say there's a need for that. I mean, that's a, that's a typical beer where it's like, you buy a six pack of it, you drink one, you put one in the back of your fridge, you bring a couple of those beers over to your friend's house. He there, you know, they'll drink one. They put one bet in the back of their fridge. It's like no one's getting rich off of a spiced winter warmer. It's, it's hard enough to sell 15 barrels in our city with that. Um, but I do see some like trends, you know, and some of it's, some of it's just a matter of like logistics for us and like having to make some like larger decisions. For example, you know, West Coast IPAs are alive and well again in Seattle. So clear, bitter, really fruity and dry um, IPAs. And when we make them, we kind of always have a tank, a 15 barrel tank full of one. It sells really fast. Um, But that's a different yeast that we use on that you know, for those beers. So for our West Coast IPAs, we're using bricks of 3470 and then warm fermenting lager yeast. Um, so if we were to scale that up into like a double 
batch of a cloudburst IPA, it would it would really mess with our our the way that we crop and harvest yeast every week to kind of keep our house strain going. Um, and then we've kind of struggled with like, well, what is a cloudburst? Like we basically say we have cloudburst IPA and then we have West Coast IPA. And so cloudburst IPA, which is still dry and, and bitter, but it is hazy, you know, from from hot polyphenols and things like that. We wonder with this trend of hazy IPA kind of heading downward, at a certain point, do we decide to ramp up more West Coast IPAs at the detriment of like what a cloudburst IPA is, right? So it's like, we haven't had to really get there yet, but I love West Coast IPAs um, and I love our regular IPAs, but I, I can see there is a definitely a thirst for more West Coast IPA in Seattle uh, more so than like a hazy IPA right now. And there's, there's also not a lot of breweries just cranking out West Coast IPAs in this city. So um, that's like kind of this like 2024, like logistical decision that we're going to have to just like make, like, should we just lean more into West Coast IPAs? And does that, that's going to then cannibalize our regular IPA, but does that even matter? So that's, that's kind of like the thing that we're looking at. So it's not necessarily like a consumer driven um, like aspect of it, because I think I, I still think like a, a West Coast IPA is going to be pretty assertive and aggressive to like the common, you know, the typical craft beer drinker that they're going to be like, Ooh, I don't know about this. This is like really aggressive. Um, but, but it is something that like I like making and I like drinking right now. So maybe we, we lean into it. Yeah. Do you feel like when you brew those, like, like you guys brew happy little clouds, which is almost like a not to style lager, right? Like right. do you, how much do you think about that in terms of like what your freedom is to bend styles or find gaps between styles? Because I feel like with the lager resurgence, there is, there's a huge amount of that that ties into the same sorts of buckets that people put beers in when they talk about a hazy versus a West coast. Um, but, but you guys have shown that you're adept at finding things that aren't necessarily traditional and finding profiles that are really cool and profiles that aren't gimmicky at all, but that don't necessarily have to be like, you can brew a lager and it doesn't need to be a perfect BJCP German pills, right? Like it doesn't need to be, what do you think about that, about brewing those beers, not to style? I think it requires, I think it's important to like have a plan from start to finish about what you want that beer to taste like and then carry it over into your your team, uh, being able to like uh, describe that to someone that's about to order it so that their expectations, as I, if you have people's expectations, uh, you know, accurately kind of dialed in, then I think it's a better response to these kind of beers that we will take, you know, more liberties on. I mean, so what we were canning today and is released tomorrow is a, it's a dry hopped Hellas. Um, so it's like, and part of this was because it's gen zero yeast. So whenever we get our first pitch of yeast, I've stopped brewing like a traditional lager with it because it's the fermentation is going to be fine, but it's never going to be, it's never going to be as predictable 
uh, of a profile as I, you know, want in most of our lager beers. So when it's Gen Zero, it's it's kind of like let's do a hoppier version of a of a lager just so that, you know, if the fermentation isn't like as smooth as we want it to be, like there's hot presence too, kind of a thing. So um so like this beer was started off like a Munich style Hellas. Uh, all all kettle editions were were German middle fruit, but then we threw in uh, some New Zealand peacherine in the whirlpool, and we dry hopped it with Citra Cryo, so like to like a half pound per barrel. So it's like it's still very subtle. It's not a pale ale per se. It's a Hellas base with some like really cool stone fruit pop character to it. And people will see Hellas, dry hopped Hellas, you know, on our menu, and they're gonna be like, "What is that?" And then it's gonna be up to a lot of our team explaining to that person, like, "This is what this is. This is how this beer started out. This is what this beer tastes like. This is what we're going for with it." Like, please don't judge this up against Augustiner. Like, it's it's not it's not like that. But um, if 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 there's no talk about it. And someone brings that home, they're going to be like, "What the fuck is Clabbers doing? What is this Hellas? This tastes nothing like a fucking Hellas." So, um, so it's it's tricky. It's tricky to navigate, I guess. Those beers that you brew, though, that fall into those sort of in between styles, still tend to have a profile that is very. It tastes like a classic beer. Like if you if you don't know stylistically exactly what a Hellas is or what the difference between a Hellas and a German pills or Czech pills, or, you know, even much, much less talking about all the different Czech beers and all the Germ different German beers that there are, you would still drink that beer and it doesn't taste like, it tastes like a beer, right? It still has a, a crisp profile. It's aromatic. It has the hot background, but it seems like you guys have almost intentionally taken advantage of being American brewers and not being held to those sorts of historical standards. Yeah. I mean, I think we've got some more leeway. Um, I mean, we can still, we still brew, you know, plenty of traditional style lagers. Um, and there's a few styles that I haven't touched yet because I actually, I want to taste them, you know, like in Germany to see what we should even be going for. You know, I think mo the most important thing is like, having a vision for this beer and executing it. So if it's like, we've also got a traditional like Bohemian style Pilsner in the tank too, that'll be out in a few weeks after this Hellas. So it's like, that's kind of showing, we, I, we like having multiple like traditional lagers and like, you know, kind of non-stylistic lagers on tap side by side, I think just from a brewer's aspect where you're like, okay, that was this cool little hoppy Hellas, but like, now let me try this Bo Pills. That's just like, Tatnang and Sots and Wireman floor malted pills and seven weeks with 3470 kind of a deal. Like it's just, it's nice having a little bit of both because I do think, I think just from, from a brewer standpoint of things, you know, like you should be able to, to make most traditional styles that are done well and like blindly perceived as like, you know what? Yeah. This is totally what an ESP should taste like. Like let's, you know, not like, not like you want to always make an ESB or have it on have it on your taps, but like I think that that's that's important to like our philosophy at Clabbers is like if it's a traditional style, it should it should taste like that traditional style. 
I noticed earlier when you were talking about using 3470 for West Coast that that West Coast that the target has shifted, right? Like it, at some point, IPA seemed to split into hazy and West Coast and West Coast became this thing that has evolved, right? Like West Coast, that 3470 West Coast is not pre-hazy West Coast. Right. How how does how do you deal with that with consumer demand and people wanting beers that that maybe where they don't even understand that the difference between the the way that it looks and the way that it tastes, right? Like hazy is hazy at it, you know, this is a physical, this is a visual descriptor, not a for for a style that was really started by a lot of people who are trying to hit a specific flavor, aromatic, textural thing, right? And it became T- totally confused because people were pouring it on Instagram. You're looking at it and you're like, oh, it's it's hazy, right? Like, how do you how do you explain to people when you're making beers that are West Coast but have hop haze or beers that are hazy but are brighter? Like what what's that what's that conversation like? What's that what's the experience like being as brewer trying to translate your intent through that like filter? Oh, it's so it's like it's a lot of work. I, I mean it's a lot of communicating. Uh I mean, with what, so to us now, it's, I think if you're, if you're going to get semantically, our IPAs have always been West Coast hazy IPAs. You know, they're, 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 they're both. Our IPAs have always been both. And that was a battle for the first three plus years of our existence. People were like, Clabberus is making these hazy IPAs, but they're like too bitter and dry. It's like, they don't even know what they're doing with like what a New England style IPA should be. And you're like, no, that's not what we're trying to do. Um, to then now, so now like people kind of get what a Clabberus style IPA is. And so then our West Coast IPAs are clear. Um, and I think the expectation now is like, if you see West Coast IPA on a menu, you're like, that should probably be pretty clear. Like maybe there's a, the tiniest bit of, tiniest veil of haze, but you should be able to see through that West Coast IPA. Um, whereas if you just see IPA, you know, you don't really know what you're going to be getting or so. Um, the 3470, the warm 3470, it's like we use warm bricked 3470 for West Coast IPAs. We use BSI's 3470 lager yeast for our traditional lagers. So we're using like two different 3470s uh, in, in the brewery. Uh, mostly because it's like one likes, you know, our, our BSI 3470, like we're fermenting that primary is now starting at 49 and like, we're doing a very little bump. We're going like lower and slower than we, than we have been before. Whereas like bricked 3470, we're only getting one use out of that pitch and that's fermented, you know, almost at 60 to start with a bump up to like 65. So I think, I think most people don't know that our West coast IPAs are brewed with 3470, but it was a way for us to differentiate our two IPAs styles in house, like way easier. It's like different fermentation profile in addition to like different hopping regimen. And and it looks different too, versus if we were just using our house yeast on the West coast IPAs too, it'd be like, it, it just would be too similar of a like total it'd be too similar of a beer to the current beer we also have so um and so that's kind of like that was that that's helped at least to say like this is this and this is that but um but yeah communicate communicating that to to drinkers i th- do think i i mean from my perspective and i don't know about you but like i have seen people are at least 
slightly better about like putting certain beer styles into boxes than they were five, 10 years ago. Um, I mean, like you kind of, your beers too, right? Like people liked to talk about acidity, you know, fruited sour ales and acidity for, um, for, there was like, it was like the acid wars compared to like the IBU wars was going on in like fruited sour beers. So there was this expectation of like, I'm going to buy this fruited sour and like it should scrape the enamel off my teeth, you know, the first sip. Um, but then, but you've, yours aren't like that. Right. So did you see any difference as far as like explaining it to drinkers of like what the acidity is like in your beers? Yeah, that was really challenging early on because I think um, especially in the Northwest, some of the more popular breweries making mixed culture beer were making really acidic versions of the style. So my interest was in making lower acid versions. And and some of that was, you know, like when we started Holy Mountain, we were brewing a lot of Brett beers that were Brett, Sack, Coferment, Saisons, which to me were like, you know, we came from a background of liking Orval a lot. And and then there was an American wave of those sort of Brett Saisons. And those beers obviously are, sometimes they're a little more acidic than a just sack fermented beer, but they tend to be pretty low acid relative to mixed culture beers that have bacteria. Um, so I, I think that there's so much terminology with all of these things, whether it's lager, IPA, mixed culture beers, where even brewers don't use the same terminology. Um, so to expect that a customer understands your terminology is unrealistic. And I find that, like, I think when you were talking about the spiced winter beer, that really rang a bell because I think that you have this situation where you have this really cool beer. It comes from a background of loving another beer and you want to explain it to people and you have to walk a line between teaching them without it coming across as condescending or patronizing. So, so we struggle with that all the time with education where I don't really want to be on social media a lot and I don't really want to be a brewer personality, but I would love to share my thoughts on that with people. Um, it's one of the reasons we use the term Saison um, rather than like sometimes I'll call them wild ales just to help people. Um, but you, you say mixed culture to people and most people, their eyes glaze over, right? Like they don't know what that means. So yeah, that can be really challenging. I think that, you know, terminology can be empowering, but when you get too bogged down in terminology with, especially with new beer drinkers or people who are trying to get deeper into beer or people, people who could be turned on to beer more, you don't want it to be too pedantic, right? Like you don't want this to be something where they feel like they need a bunch of reference books to appreciate beer. So I, I worry a lot about that confusion turning people off that like they'll go somewhere and have something that someone calls a Saison and then they have one of ours and it's totally different. They don't understand that. And, and I wonder if that's, like, do you, do you see that with people where their expectation for one of those beers based on other ones they've had doesn't meet? Because you're saying, you know, there's a sense with hazies where you're like, West Coast beers have always been hazy, right? Like this is, it's a totally unhelpful uh, term to use. Do you find that people come in and that they find that terminology to be confusing? Like they want, they want a West Coast that fits a very specific profile and they don't 
you know, they either struggle to get over that terminology or they struggle to embrace the beer in spite of their sort of preconceived notions? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the more common questions still, you know, that I overhear when I'm behind the bar is like, what's your haziest IPA? And our team wow. is really good at saying like, it, it just like in the quickest, like layperson's terms possible, like, what do you mean by, well, they all are hazy in appearance, but do you mean like softest? Do you mean fruitiest? Do you mean sweetest? You know, like, like what? just to kind of match that expectation off the bat where it's like, let's stop talking about this, what the beer looks like, but like, then, then what they're like, what are you, what does that mean to you kind of a thing? Um, which is, I think a lot, I think that requires more, you know, questions from the people pouring the beer than someone that just orders a wet. I think if at this point, a customer that's ordering a West coast IPA knows it's going to be clear and it's going to be bitter. And it's going to be like, it's, it's going to be resinous and kind of one of those things. So less expectations on that. Um, but yes, that's, that's, it's one of those things I think where you deviate from the norm or you deviate from the, like the largest uh, perception, you know, of a beer style is where you're going to have some people say, this is cool. Uh, but it's not like what I had before, or you're going to have some people being like, I don't like this because it's not what I expected. You know, people, people, I think still have a hard time, like um, thinking about something that's different than just having like instant reactions, like based on expectations. Like if it's something that's not expected, I feel like most people go to like, I don't like this because it's not what I expected and not, this isn't what I expected, but like, let me think about this more and like, maybe it's more interesting or, or more, um, you know, more what you actually want. Well, I'm looking forward to trying the dry hop Hellas. I'm looking forward to trying the spice winter beer. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll drop them both off, uh, in a couple of weeks with that sweatshirt for you. Oh yeah. Good. Good. My, uh, sleeveless pink Planned Parenthood t-shirt has uh, been relegated to the dustbin. So I'll take the shirt. Uh, thanks a bunch for doing this. It was good to catch up. I know it's not the same as having a beer in person, but better this than nothing. That's totally true. It's super fun. And it's kind of full circle. Cause I feel like, uh, I don't know. I can't speak for John, but maybe he can, he can pop on here. The first time that John, I know an early impression of John's of your beer was when I brought your beer uh on another one of their podcasts oh god i was so embarrassed because i hated that beer it was one of the the early beers that we did and um it was really good when it was young and then it it sort of reacidified in the bottle and i just didn't really like where it went in the bottle and um one one of my good buddies is a a huge fan of john's podcast and he's always talking to me about them he's always like why are you why are you on his podcast why aren't you on his podcast and i was like dude like like Steve brought him one of these beers early on. It was one of our like worst beers. So he probably thinks our beer sucks, you know, like uh, this is probably why I'm not, the, you know, for me, that, that, that wasn't me. true. And Steve, <laughs> I, I, I know we didn't talk about this before, but even though I'm hanging out in the background, I don't show up on this show. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like the not so great and less than powerful Oz for this, for this particular program. So um, but I will say I've had Adam's beers uh, blind several times and I adore them. I think that they're wonderful. 
Um, and I do, I do remember that and, and fondly and brewers are always their hardest critics. Um, and I'm likely going to cut most of this out of the show. Uh, but it's so funny that we conjured Oz <laughs> at the end of yeah. the show. I love it. <laughs> I'm, this is me taking off in my giant balloon right now. <laughs> Wait, you're getting in the way of Adam doing the last thing he has to do. Okay. Steve will be back on the next episode of the show as the host, having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing. That will be on the air in two weeks, so make sure you tune in for that. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Adam Pacey of Floodland Brewing. Thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Falling temps and festive seasons are fast approaching, which means now is a good time to develop holiday stouts and brown ales using hibiscus and cinnamon from First Tea. Looking for other new ideas? You can find out more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCode.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at MaltEurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order.